Welcome to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. Today, we have a special guest speaker, Dr. Jared Pinkleton, the Vice President of the American Association of Christian Counselors. This message was given live at Grace Fellowship in York, Pennsylvania. So hold on to your seats as Dr. Pingleton teaches from God's Word. Good morning. It's a delight to be with you all again. Um, We're so privileged to have the honor to share with you and appreciate greatly the wonderful hospitality extended by Pastor Mike and Pastor Bob and others of you that we have met and uh, gotten to relate to and connect with. So it's a joy to be with you. Life is relational. And above all, God is a loving God of relationship. That is who, what, and how God is. He lovingly designed us in relationship, through relationship, for relationship. Yet, in the short distance from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3, there is an enormous journey that is required because of sin. Sin forever changed the way in which we relate, and it still changes us in unfortunately destructive and painful ways. So how many people have absolutely perfect relationships this morning? Always loving, always secure, always affirmative, always respectful. Is there anything harder? And is there anything more important than our relationships? What I want us to consider today are a couple of ways to approach relationships. One of those is the world's way, and the other of those is through Jesus. And what we're going to do after that is we're going to take a look at how it is we can offer some very simple, and how many of you know that sometimes simple is not easy? It's simple to put a person on the moon, it's just not easy to get them there, if you're an astrophysicist, that is, I suppose. But seven simple things that you can do, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to where our lives will be changed forever. So when we take a look at relationships, we have to ask ourselves some questions. Who, what, why, when, where? Um, And so when we look at relationships, we see that there are some ways in which we approach the world and we need to understand some things. Now, how many of us know that we are an accumulation of all of our past experience, right? Here's the deal. Nobody walks out of the womb knowing how to do this relationship stuff, right? And so we have to think, okay, um, who taught us how to relate with other people? I mean, those are things that are either acquired or they're not. And we know that dysfunctional family systems tend to perpetuate. Exodus 20 verse 5 says this, that the sins of the fathers are passed down or transmitted to the third and fourth generations. And so we see that typically dysfunction, and I like to put the fun back in dysfunction, you know what I mean? Um, dysfunction is, is something that typically is a family system dynamic. So we pass this stuff on. We, we learn to relate from those around us. And so what, what is a healthy relationship anyway? How's that defined? Um, you know, with, with gender differences, men and women approach relationships very differently. 
Uh, people and families themselves approach things differently. We've got birth order. We've got all these variables involved in how it is we relate. And so what is that? What does that look like? So we'll take a look at that biblically today. Then this whole thing about boundaries. A boundary is not really a big, abstract, difficult thing. It simply means where we stop, another start, and where we start, another stop. Boundaries are all around us. There are yellow lines on highways. Uh, Those are boundaries and so on. So we have to take a look at where are the relationship boundaries in our lives involved. And then we look also at how we reach out to other people and, and when, what, what's appropriate, what constitutes a violation of people's boundaries or personal space. But, but it all is to think about how did we start this whole process of how we relate and how it is that our relationships to all of your witness so far in this room are not perfect or ideal. And then finally, why do we struggle? We do all struggle, and the struggle is real. Got some copies of the book by that title about which we're theming these conferences we're doing around the country, because my passion and calling, I believe, is we want to put this book in the hand of every church leader and minister in the world, because the struggle is real. And we believe there is a Redeemer who will transform and heal and and redeem people's lives. So these are some of the questions that we have to think about. And so let's take a look at this. Well, where do we start? Well, I, I know that many times in the church, Sunday school is a blessing. I was blessed to have some really great Sunday school teachers when I was a lot shorter. And that the theology that comes through those is very interesting. And I, I remember Linda and I have four sons, and they're all a lot taller than me now. And our youngest just got engaged Friday night. She's a delightful young lady. And Linda is going, my baby. But um, anyway, so he, he learned relationships. And I remember our son's second grade teacher always taught them to eat your dessert first, just in case the rapture comes while you're eating your vegetables. <laughs> and I, you know, I thought that was pretty good theology. But see, theology gets taught to us if we grow up in the church when we're fairly short. And so many times there are some ways in which children tend to either distort the teaching a little bit or the teaching is less than orthodox. For example, one little girl raised her hand when the story of Noah and the ark was being taught and she goes, I know the name of Noah's wife. Really? The teacher said, yes, her name was Joan. She goes, Joan? Yes, Joan of Ark. (laughs) One little boy thought that the epistles were the wives of the apostles. I I can see that. Another kid thought that Samson fought the Finkelsteins with the acts of the apostles. Mixed up a couple of stories there a little bit. Then uh, one little girl was firmly believing that Paul taught holy acrimony, which is another word for marriage. Then this one kid, I I thought this one was really pretty hilarious. Um, He said that, you know, the Bible teaches that a husband should only have one wife, and this is called monotony. (laughs) But my favorite, my favorite one is this, this little guy got a couple of stories mixed up, but he goes, remember Lot's wife. She was a pillar of cloud by day, and a ball of fire by night. (laughs) So you can see why (laughs) sometimes our relationships get distorted, right? And unfortunately, and to all of you 
childcare workers and teachers, uh, apologies, please, but sometimes children distort the message a little bit, don't they? Because we're children. And unless we change and become like a little child, we won't enter the kingdom. And so I want us to consider some kingdom principles today that I'm excited about because I'm passionately believing that God is a redeemer. And these are some principles that anybody can do um, in a lived out way to make the gospel not just vertical, but horizontal. And that to me is where the proverbial rubber meets the road, if you will. So what we have to do to start is to take a look at some paradigms. And a paradigm is a big word that means our, our concept or our mental framework, our conceptual approach to relationships. And the, the first paradigm that we see about how we're taught is passive and reactive. Here's what I mean by that. I know you probably never had this happen, but I did yesterday, actually. Some jerk cut me off on the freeway. Now, when that happens, we have some choices to make, don't we? And what happens typically from, from your friends, okay? Their blood pressure doubles. They're tempted to, you know, do some stuff that's probably not the most godly reaction, right? I remember very vividly, I was driving to work one day years ago, and it's going 70 miles an hour, and 65 zones, sinning as Christians do many times, uh, by breaking the law of the land. And it was bumper-to-bumper traffic, and some jerk cut me off. And seriously, I nearly bought the farm, and Linda could have cashed in my life insurance. And it was very frightening. I I was scared. And so after I got back on the road, I was determined to try to wiggle my way through traffic and catch up to that guy and give him a good Christian dirty look. And so I did. And it took a couple of miles to get up even. I look over, it's my buddy Mike. He got a new car that week. He's in my Sunday school class. Aren't I glad I wasn't, you know, and you know, he was lost in Christian praise music and I was probably driving in his blind spot, right? Reactions are not healthy. Why? Because they're born of our flesh. When we instantly react, what happens, we know from brain science, is our amygdala gets hijacked. That is, we get an immediate flood of adrenaline and other biochemicals that cause our emotions to go haywire. And what's commonly tempting is to yell and scream for fight or for flight to run away or to freeze where we just stay paralyzed because we're too terrified. All three of those are unhealthy. Why? Because they're reactive. And I know that when I let somebody else push my buttons or jerk my chain or whatever euphemism you want to do there, what happens is I end up being what? The victim. Because when I look at life as to what happens to me, I don't get to vote, do I? And so there's that sense of passivity. And when we're shorter, we don't get to vote. And when we're abused, when we're neglected, right? We are victimized. And so This is the mindset we have. And unfortunately, as we get taller, we appropriate and carry that over into our other relationships. Because, and I'm going to bash some cultural icons here, but Hollywood and Hallmark have lied to us, okay, about what relationships are like. Because the common denominator of all romantic novels, all pornography, and all chick flicks is this that love is generated by the other person and focused onto us. Let me say that again. That love is something that the other person does to or for us to fulfill our self-centered gratifications. 
Are you tracking with me with that? It's a passive thing that we receive. So we're passive receptive. That's what Hollywood teaches us. That's what Hallmark teaches us. That's what the culture teaches us implicitly, that it's all about us. It's because of that. Now, here's the deal. Anybody can love somebody who's lovely, loving, and lovable, right? Anybody can do that. It's like a knee-jerk reflex. Jesus said, even the heathen can do that. Even the IRS agents. Oops, maybe if you work for the government, I'm sorry. Um, I was just telling Pastor Mike this morning, I put my foot in my mouth a few years ago by talking about some oxymorons, you know, like crash landing, jumbo shrimp, shrimp, military intelligence. And a guy came up to me after, he goes, hey, guess what I do for a living? I, I, I don't know. <clears throat> military intelligence. And that was a Southwest Airlines commercial moment for me. Want to get away? Um, but I couldn't. So anyway, even the heathen can love those who love them, right? That isn't hard. That's the flesh. And that's what we're taught. And that's where it stops. I remember reading the ancient philosopher Socrates had a statement that epitomizes this principle. He says, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> See, that's a passive reactive stance to relationships. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so we get mired in our misery, we get stuck in our depression, we get frustrated and we're tempted to sin and to act those frustrations out in unhealthy, destructive, and dysfunctional ways. Folks, that's not how we're to be. That's not how we were created. We were not created to be victims. We were not created to live in misery. We were not created to be passive and let what happens to us. Think of this in the culture. Fate. Luck. Where are those in the Bible? I think they're in Hezekiah 10.4 or maybe First Confusions 3.6, one of those. I was getting mixed up. Sarcasm alert. Sorry if that is offensive. Folks, we can do better and we must. We must. Otherwise, we are destined to live a life of misery in our victimizations because of sinfulness, right? We have been beaten up. We have been hurt. We have been disappointed. We have been frustrated. We have been unfulfilled. The pain is real. The struggle is real, okay? So what do we do about it? Well, there's another paradigm that the Bible teaches that I want us to unpack today. And before I do that in specifics, I want to take a look a little bit at the theory. In John 10, 18, Jesus said something very intriguing that I absolutely love and admire about his character and his personhood. I think he was the toughest guy that ever lived. I think he made John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, Mr. T, Rambo, the Terminator, look like a wimp. Because what he said is this, no one takes my life from me, I willingly lay it down. And if you remember reading about his seminary graduation party, uh, one Saturday morning, he stood up in the Nazareth synagogue and asked the altar boy to fetch the Isaiah scroll. And he unrolled and read from the Isaiah scroll and said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news and open blind eyes and set captives free and all these wonderful transformative dynamics of the gospel. And today, you have heard this fulfilled in your hearing. Now, every male in the village, by presumption, we can include his four half-brothers, were in that room. And they, in unison, did something very interesting. Took him to the edge of town to throw him off a cliff. Blasphemy! How could he dare? Blah, 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 blah. And did I mention his four half-brothers were in the room unless they went to Bedside Tabernacle that morning? Maybe some of you have gone there. 
uh, Pastor Pillows, great, great sermon giver, um, and, and often special music by the Inner Springs Quartet. Uh, I like that one song, The Comforter Has Come. So Bob warned you about the puns. They keep coming. All right. But that's by design. I'm not being passive victim. I'm, you know, that's this other model. So, so Jesus does something interesting. He's there with a couple 300 murderously angry Jewish men, intensely, riotously upset, right? Now, if he's passive, he throws a couple of three of them off first to hopefully increase his odds of survival so he'll have a softer place to land, right? Or allow himself to be prematurely martyred and lay a guilt trip on them on the way down. But he did neither of those. Luke's gospel is very clear. It says, instead, he turned and walked through the middle of them. Wow. You want to talk about tough. You want to talk about proactive, which is the next paradigm I want us to take a look at. Instead of being reactive, what the scripture teaches us to be is to be proactive and to respond, not to react. When I react, who's in charge of me? The other person, the flesh. When I respond, who's in charge of me? I am, and the Holy Spirit's power through me. So, folks, it's a world of difference. And so I want us to consider this paradigm shift. This is a radical worldview change. Because when we no longer become victims, allow ourselves to stay victimized, we can be transformed to be victors. And that is God's will and plan and purpose for your life. The ways in which you have been victimized, God wants to redeem and to transform by the power of his spirit into a glorious and powerful sense of Holy Spirit-driven, godly-oriented, Bible-based love to other people. Because what is God about? You know, I, I said earlier that God, God is love, and that's who, what, and how he is. But let's take a look at that. What does love look like? Well, one thing that love does is it gives. Actually, God loved so much the world that he what? Gave. And Jesus gave the Holy Spirit as gifts. And the Holy Spirit gives gifts to us of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I love that that list of nine fruit is bookended by love and self-control, right? If you think of that as like an accordion, remember those old-fashioned instruments that would do polkas. Um, and I, I know in this community, some of you will do that because of the, the heritage geographically that this area is known for. Um, so there's that sense in which these two fruit of love and self-control are the start and finish of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through you and around you and in your relationships with other people to where there will be a positive, if you will, infection that will spread or yeast that will permeate your relational world. And that is the transformative power and the essence and the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to make us different. If we're going to be passive reactors and flip people off on the freeway just like everybody else, what good is that? Why do we bother? If life, if that's what it is and then you die, that's meaningless because there's no purpose. There's no mission. There's no sense of identity that says you are different. You, sir, ma'am, are a dearly beloved, precious child of the Almighty God in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells richly. That's the gospel. And we can be victors in that way. 
And I love again that sense of Jesus taking charge. No one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down or relinquish or give it up. And folks, that's how we're to be. I remember hearing about one gal one time who looked at her husband very romantically and dreamily and says, darling, do you love me? And he goes, sure, honey, I I love you. No, no, no. I mean, do you really, really, really love me? And he goes, yeah, I I just told you. And and she goes, would you love me no matter what? He's thinking to himself, what's going on here? He goes, sure. Honey, would you love me so much that you would even die for me? And he thought a minute and he goes, no, honey, my love for you is an undying love. (laughs) Sharp guy. (sighs) Our love is to be self-sacrificial. And one of the ways that we sacrifice is we take charge of what the adversary stole from us, and we choose to love and give in some ways. And so there are seven principles I want us to think through this morning that are examples of gifting this love to other people by which you will be not victimized, but victorious in your relationship. And to make it a little more simple, all of them start with the letter A. So if you're taking notes, you can just put seven capital A's on on your paper to start. But these are biblical principles that I believe will absolutely revolutionize your relationships, okay? And these are straight from Scripture. We're going to look at, at three Scriptures per principle, and we're going to understand some of the dynamics about these. The first of these seven principles we see is acceptance. For a moment, let's take a look at the antitype or opposite of acceptance. Rejection hurts more than probably anything else there is, Right? Everybody agree with that? Rejection stinks. Anybody not been rejected in life so far in this room? Yeah, okay, we get it. Acceptance is what we long for. It is the sense of feeling like we are precious and valuable. And Jesus said, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So we see that between the Father and the Son, this, this dynamic of acceptance is extended out relationally, horizontally to the world. And this is not just a salvific or soteriological, these are a couple of big fancy theological terms, salvation-oriented principle. This is a relationship principle. If you accept Jesus, you accept the Father. And he accepts you, he accepts the son. Acceptance is the really the key dynamic in the Trinity. The relationship dynamics between the father and the son is all about acceptance. And here's the thing. Nobody can make you love them, right? And you can't make anyone love you. You've tried probably, if you're like me, right? How'd that work? There's another psychologist on TV that would say something like, how's that working for you? And the sad thing is, is most of you know who that is. Anyway, sorry, I I digress. Um, It doesn't work. We can't make somebody love us. Why? Because it's a violation of their will. See, even if you're trying to cram ice cream, which I think is one of the best things God ever created, by the way. Amen. Yeah. If you're trying to cram ice cream down somebody's throat, what happens? There's a built-in gag reflex. It's going to come right back, and I think that's almost tragic to think about ice cream being wasted like that. See, it's not what's being shoved, but the it's being shoved activates that built-in gag reflex. And I've seen even well-meaning, well-intentioned Christians try to be coercive or manipulative or controlling about God. It doesn't work. And for somebody who's been victimized, it's actually a violation of their will. 
So acceptance is a gift that you can give under any circumstance to anyone in any way and any reason. Nobody can make you not give somebody acceptance. Now, the challenge is, is you won't feel like it. Why should I accept them? They blah, 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 blah. Okay, I hear you. And what does that have to do with the Great Commission? What does that have to do with you're supposed to go love people? Well, one thing you can do that will get you out of a victimized sense of feeling rejected is to accept people. Another passage that takes a look at this dynamic is we're commanded to continue to accept and welcome one another as Christ has accepted and welcomed us to the glory of our great God. So it's not just a vertical dimension, it's a horizontally lived out aspect of the gospel that we're to accept one another. And folks, this is transformative. I'm telling you, when you make people feel accepted, that will be a way you will win friends and influence people in a positive way. When you give a message of acceptance to others, it will transform and redeem their lives like nothing else. And then finally, we see that by the praise and glory of his grace, he makes us accepted in the beloved. That sense of grace permeating through our sin to transform who we are into the family of God. So there is this enormous biblical emphasis on this psychological relational dynamic of acceptance. And it's, it's absolutely powerful. Then we see some quotes talking about this uh, from others. The greatest gift that you can give to others is the gift of unconditional love and acceptance. Wow, that's powerful. And Paul Tournier, a Christian psychiatrist, said at the heart of personality is the need to feel a sense of being lovable without having to qualify for the acceptance. See, acceptance is either conditional or it's not, right? If you have to jump through hoops and keep a list of rules to feel accepted, that's not acceptance. Now, acceptance is not condoning of sin, okay? It's looking past the fault and seeing the need. God hates sin, loves sinners. Why? Because sin hurts and kills sinners for whom Jesus died, all right? So don't confuse that principle. Acceptance is either conditional or it's not. Love is either conditional or it's not. But you can make your loving acceptance be unconditional, and that's what we need. Because Christianity is all about that, and if God accepts me as I am, then I better do the same. In other words, what right do I have to judge somebody for whom Jesus died? I don't have the right to criticize, condemn, and reject somebody. That's not my calling. And it's a great temptation as a shrink because we're trained to diagnose people, which really translates well to the ministry of criticism and the gift of fault finding. Yeah, I, I can be expert at that. And that for me is a temptation by training by, as well as by nature. But see, the point that if God's going to use me with that is, you know, the difference between a knife and a scalpel is one thing, motivation. They're both sharp metal objects. One can do great damage, the other can do great healing. And so when we understand people's pain, we can hurt them more than anybody else or help and heal them more than anybody else. Because God gives us the choice as to whether we're going to be victims or victors. So that's the first of the seven principles is acceptance. The second has to do with something that's simple, and that's attention. Attention is very expensive. Notice there's a three-letter word in all three of these verses coming up that has to do with expense and cost. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you today and carefully follow them, you'll always be at the top, never at the bottom. That's a cool promise. 
unless you're really, really masochistic and like it'd be at the bottom all the time. <laughs> Sorry, that was sardonic. Hey, this is good news. But what is it that we pay attention to the commands? And, and in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, you know, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is God. And these commands and laws and decrees that I give you today are to be upon your heart, impress them upon the children, write them on your hearts, bind them on your wrists, tie them on your foreheads, write them on your doorposts and on your gates. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you wake up, when you walk along the road, you know, only when you're awake or asleep or when you're at home or not. Those are the only times you're to talk about God. That's it. No other times. Paying attention means what? We subscribe and ascribe value and honor to the other person. When we're being paid attention to, how do we feel? When someone pays attention to you, what's it like? How does it make you feel? Valuable, worthwhile, right? You can give that gift to other people anytime. But paying attention is going to cost you something. The word pay there is a double entendre, a double meaning. It means you have to take a look at what you were doing and lay it aside. When our guys would come up and I was in the middle of something, you know, I, I got to lay it aside and, and attend. Tend is the middle part of attention. You care for that other person. It's a gift that you either give or you don't. And that other person is going to feel valued when you give them that gift, right? And so does God. When we pay attention to his words, it makes him feel valuable. It makes him feel good. Did you know you can make God feel good? Hey, that's an awesome thing. When you pay attention to who, what, and how God is, that is what we're here for, all right? So then we see Job saying, pay attention and listen to me. Be silent and I'll speak. You know, I used to think Job was about suffering. I no longer do. I think Job is about faith. Though you kill me yet, I will trust you, he says. And so God says, pay attention and I'll, I'll speak. Sometimes we don't hear God's voice when we're going through a test. And did you ever think that the teacher giving a test is always silent? The challenge is, how well have we studied? The challenge is, how will we come through this test? You know, you can't have a testimony without going through a test, right? And we, we complain, we gripe, and it's like, well, you have an hour for this test. You want to gripe and moan, or you want to try to figure out the answers? And oh, by the way, if you will just shut up, you know, then I'll speak if you're silent. So paying attention to God is a big deal. And then we see next, you've seen many things, but you pay no attention your ears are open, but you don't listen. Hello? Anybody in there? Isaiah is saying, your ears are open, but you don't listen. That's not paying attention. So some other things about attention that we can take a look at here. Um, one of the greatest gifts you can give to anybody, the capacity to give attention to a sufferer is a very rare and difficult thing. It's a miracle. It's the rarest and purest form of generosity. Wow, isn't that cool? And then um, the most basic and powerful way to connect to another person is to listen. Just listen. It's, it's the best thing we can give to somebody else is our attention. So acceptance, attention. The third relational principle that the Bible teaches us about that I want us to consider today is admiration. Many times in a, in a dysfunctional marriage, people will say, oh, I just don't have feelings for them anymore. And, you know, I empathize with that and think, what does that have to do with your marriage covenant? If love is an overabundance of warm fuzzies, then that's what Jesus died of on the cross because that was his supreme ultimate example of love, right? See, Hollywood and Hallmark, again, have brainwashed us. Can I say that? Lied to us. Yeah, I'll say it. So 
this whole thing is, is a big deal, admiration. Esther was such that she was admired by her husband and, and she won the admiration. What the research shows is, is when you no longer feel in love with your spouse or someone, A, you probably quit investing in them yesterday because we reap what? What we sow. If you don't feel love towards somebody now, you probably quit investing in them before now. Duh. That's like rocket science and brain surgery. But what the research shows is when you start admiring someone, you know what it does to you? It changes you. You start feeling warm fuzzies toward the person you admire. When you find positive things in that other person, when you can build them up and you express and give to them admiration, awesome things happen. So Esther, by the way, transformed in, uh, two nations and saved her own people by the way in which she won the admiration of everybody. Then Proverbs, in talking about this incredible lady that were to give her all of this admiration and, and praise because she's worthy of that. And then the next verse says something in a different way in Song of Songs. Here's this elaborate, awesome, love-permeated, sensual, erotic example of godly love in a Christian marriage that is filled with admiration toward one another. And so to unpack that is, is really powerful. So when we give somebody admiration, what it does is it not only changes that other person by making them feel what? Special, but it changes our heart toward them. If you've got a hard heart toward somebody right now, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to pray that you will find something to admire about them because what that's going to do is it's going to soften your hard heart. That's going to melt the swelling that you have from old wounds. That's going to change you. It'll revolutionize your relationships. You will no longer feel victimized by the legitimate horrible things they did or didn't do. It might have been sins of omission, not just sins of commission. It's going to transform your heart and life. So we give acceptance, attention, admiration. And then the, the fourth gift that we're to give is appreciation. What appreciation does is it also changes you. That's a sense of understanding a sense of value and of worth. When we feel appreciated, man, it makes us want to, it, it motivates us. It makes us want to run through a troop and jump over a wall or vice versa or both at the same time, right? It is energizing when somebody appreciates. Why? Because they acknowledge what you do and who you are and what you're about. And a sense of appreciation makes the heart warm for both people. Um, Paul says, I praise and appreciate you because you remember me in everything and you firmly hold to the traditions. You know, you, you've accepted my teaching. He had a relationship with the church at Corinth and he is affirming the way that they have appreciated him because it, it made him feel validated. Isn't that at the end of the day what we want from our relationships is to feel validated and valuable and special? And then we see he also says, um, you know, speaking about one of the leaders, appreciate and honor people like this in the church. People are worthy of being acknowledged and recognized and appreciated for that which they do. And then finally, he also teaches that to, to honor leaders who work hard and are given the responsibility of urging and guiding and obedience, overwhelm them with appreciation and love. Okay? Overwhelm them with appreciation and love. I think what he's saying there, it's, it takes a whole lot of appreciation to make your pastoral staff mad. Okay? I mean, it, it'll take a whole bunch. So that's what Paul's saying. And then we see some other statements about appreciation that I think are important. Um, it can make a day, change a life, 
And your willingness, note the key there, to put it into words is always necessary. Just, it takes you to extend yourself. You got to do this, or maybe one of these. Yeah, I appreciate the way. You... No, seriously. You've got to be willing to extend yourself, and that'll, that'll change their life. Mother Teresa, wow. Now, remember her context. She was working with starving children, all right? Watch this. There's more hunger for love and appreciation in this world than for bread. See, people are starving, she thought, for appreciation and love. And you have the ability, you have the capacity, you have the gift to give those people that are emotionally starving that for which they hunger most. And then the French philosopher said, appreciation is a wonderful thing. It makes what's excellent in others belong to us as well. See, one of the reasons we don't appreciate is because we're jealous. And if we appreciate somebody's new car that we would like to steal if it weren't against the law, Okay, let's get real. Hello, don't tell me you haven't been tempted by that too. When we appreciate, look what happens. It's like, well, you know, can you take me for a ride in your new car? That way I can appreciate it. Okay, the next, the fifth A word that we're gonna look at today is approval. Now, the Bible talks a lot about this. And again, our temptation to think is, well, I'm not going to approve of something that's wrong or sinful. But aren't we being judgmental when we do that? See, it's not that we approve the behavior, we approve the person, right? There's a difference between loving the sin and loving the sinner. And so approval has to do with the personhood. Um, And again, we see that Esther garnered the approval of, of her husband. And that, again, was transformative to the culture. The next verse that we see is Solomon said, when God approves of your life, even your enemies will end up shaking your hand. Isn't that cool? Okay, think about your enemies. The gal at work that gossips about you. You know who I'm talking about, all right? You're not maybe at war with tanks and artillery, but you have enemies. And yet, when God approves of your life, even they will shake your hand. And then Paul says, because anybody who serves Christ that's pleasing to God receives human approval. Now, you may get martyred for your faith, but your fellow Christians will be cheering you on. Pray for our brother in Turkey, by the way, that's been suffering for a year and a half because he had the audacity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the president and the ambassador and others and senators are finally getting involved, but you know that was his crime. But see, we've got to do this. All right, so what do some other folks say? I've yet to find the person, however great or exalted, that didn't do better work and put forth greater effort under a spirit of approval than a spirit of criticism. If you want to shape the behavior of someone else, you want to modify their behavior, honey attracts more flies than vinegar. When you give them approval instead of criticism, they're going to be motivated in a healthy way to grow and change and heal. It's that simple. And as much as we thirst for approval, we dread criticism. See, these are two sides of the same coin because criticism has to do with judgment and condemnation. What does the Bible say about that? John three seventeen, I think, is in some way better news than the verse before that. Jesus didn't come here to put people down, but that through him the world would be saved. Wow. You can say amen or hallelujah or awesome or cool or whatever. That's good news. A man can't be comfortable without his own approval, Mark Twain said, Samuel Clemens, pen name there. But see, we also have to give these gifts to ourselves, don't we? So this is a crucial set of issues. The number six, affection. Affection is so vital. It is a tangible physical expression of love. And for people whose love language is meaningful touch, this one is a, is a huge one. And, and it's a biblical principle where to... Um, 
You know, love one another with brotherly affection and honor each other. I mean, we're to physically, tangibly giving appropriate physical affection to other people. We see also scripture talking about the holy kiss or holy embrace. I don't know why more churches don't increase in attendance by saying it's now time for holy kisses. I I just, you know, man, Solomon said a kiss on the lips is better than honey. But um, anyway, that's probably another topic. And we can do a marriage seminar and come back on that later. Uh, Thirdly, (laughs) moving right along. Okay, there it is. And of course, the word holy talks about motivation and appropriateness and boundaries. And so that's all good. See, affection's a big deal. And so what we see about it is C.S. Lewis said it's responsible for nine-tenths of whatever good stuff happens in the world. Wow. Think about that for a minute. Then Longfellow, talk not of wasted affection. It was never wasted. There is no such thing as bad affection, right? And then um, it's the broadest basis of a good life, says another poet. All right. The final A word has to do with something very interesting. It's called advocacy. An advocate is someone who stands up for someone on their behalf that can't defend themselves. When you go to bat for someone, you're going to be expressing love to them in some ways that is priceless, that they can't do for themselves. And so we see this is so powerful biblically. And I wanted to land with this one because this one's the most important. When we stand in the gap for another person, it's called intercession in prayer. But we see here that by the time David finished reporting to, to Saul, we see this bond between Jonathan and David and his number one advocate and friend. There was that sense of connectivity that was loyal, that was no betrayal, a sense of, I've got your back, I'm standing up for you, I've got this, buddy, and that's a crucial thing. We need that with other people. We also see that Scripture talks about this advocate is something that is who, what, and how Jesus is. We all have an advocate because when the Father looks at us, as it were, without through being that through the blood of Jesus, he sees a sinner condemnational worthy of death. But see, Romans 8, 1 says there is no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. Because why? Jesus is our advocate. He's saying, ah, yeah, I know they were a jerk, but not guilty because of me. I, I took it for him, dad, so it's cool. Paid for. Oh, father goes good. So that's a big deal. And then finally, we see how Jesus asks for the Holy Spirit to come to fulfill that in our lives. In closing, I want to share a story with you that to me advocates strongly and illustrates these seven principles in a nutshell about how it is we move from being reactive to proactive, how we move from being passive to assertive. And this is a great story. I heard it on Focus on the Family 20-some years ago before I went to work there and served a counseling center there. But this story was interesting. 82-year-old widow lady, tiny little petite gal, was awakened one morning at 2.30 in the morning to some noise downstairs in her kitchen. And so she gets up and walks down the stairs. And as she turns the corner into her kitchen and turns on the light, she immediately is taken aback because there's a six foot four, 230 pound guy pointing a loaded 44 right at her head. What happened in the next couple of moments transformed thousands of lives. Okay, what do you think would be the normal reaction? You don't expect that, right? So what this little lady said is, now, Sonny... When you go to robber school, they don't teach you how to deal with a little old lady that calls you Sonny. I'm just saying, right? Now, Sonny, put that thing down. Do you think I'm going to hurt you? (laughs) Who's in charge? 
Who's in charge in that kitchen? It's not the thug. She goes, if you're looking for where I keep the good silver, I hide it in that drawer over there behind that. Obviously, for you to break into my house at 2.30 in the morning, you must need it more than me. Wow. The guy didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say. And 10 minutes later, she leads him to the Lord in her kitchen. And the story is told by the pastor of a mega church who some years ago was high on drugs and turned to a life of crime to support his drug habit, but got radically and wonderfully saved from a little old lady in her kitchen in the middle of the night. And you know the best part of the story? (laughs) She got to keep her soul. been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.